0: You know, I wasn't going to say it, but uh, anybody else besides Kirk wouldn't have squeezed between that piano and that wall right there. (laughs) I was going to leave that alone, but then Kirk making fun of me of how I pronounce words, I uh, figured I'd throw him under the bus too. Well, if you would, keep your Bibles open with me there to Acts chapter 17. We've been studying through the book of Acts. We'll find Paul on his second missionary journey this morning as we continue. Um, But you know, we live... In an age, church family with uh, with numerous competing truth claims, uh, groups that would say believe this system or live your life in this way or follow this truth, and perhaps the most prevailing truth claim in our country uh, today is that there is no truth. Right? That truth is is relative. You have your truth. I have my truth. Uh, perhaps the, we we. We do what works for us. You do what works for you. I'll do what works for me. And, uh, and we're to be tolerant of other people's truths, no matter how insane they may be. Uh, even among uh, what people that would call themselves Christians, uh, there can be some really, really messed up and wonky beliefs and practices. Just this week, uh, many of you may have seen it too, uh, a, a Twitter post went viral from, uh, from Union Seminary in, uh, in New York City. Their official uh, Twitter account, Union Seminary, said this this week. Uh, Today in chapel, we confessed to plants. plants. Together, we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow, and confessed to these beings, the plants, who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. Confessing to plants, church family. Groups that would call themselves Christian. Uh, it's, it's modern day paganism and in our world today we, we have so many competing truth claims so how do we respect people's views which we should do we should respect one another respect our neighbor even if they're wrong even if they're absurd um, like confessing to plants but how do we respect our neighbors and at the same time sift through all of these truth claims and land at actual truth objective truth And you may be relieved to know, church family, that this is not a new question uh, that I'm asking this morning. People have been asking this question for thousands of years. And what we've seen through our study of Acts is Paul dealing with this question. Paul will go into a new city and he'll go to the Jewish synagogue, the the religious uh, center of that city. And he'll tell the Jews there, this is the truth. This is the truth that you should believe, and he'll tell them about Christ. And then he'll go into the marketplace where he'll meet Romans and Greeks who are are not religious, at least from a a Jewish standpoint. And he'll tell them, this is the truth, and he'll share with them the gospel of Jesus Christ. And uh, and so whether he's speaking to religious people or secularists, uh, he's saying this is universal, absolute truth that you should believe Jesus died on behalf of sinners. And to believe that, to repent of your sins and follow Christ is the only way you'll have forgiveness of sins and eternal life in a place called heaven. And so we see Paul doing this. And so let's dive in this morning with this question in mind, thinking about our own culture, our own world, the day and age that we live in this question. What is the most fundamental truth of Christianity or what is the central message of the Bible? And is it true? Is it true? Is it believed? Can it be believed by everyone? No matter their their culture, their country, their language, what their backgrounds are. Is it the truth that everyone is to believe? And how can we know that to be the case? How can we trust that that's the case? Now, we're going to see this in the text this morning, but I want to give you the answer to that question before we start. So I've asked the question, what's the most fundamental truth of Christianity? What's the central message of the Bible? Now, I want to give you the answer because as I give you the answer, I think we see it massaged throughout the text. We see it in both of Paul's stops this morning on his missionary journey. Here's the answer to the question, the gospel. The gospel. Now, that's a, that's a word we use all the time. We have gospel singings, gospel music, gospel ministry, gospel trips, gospel organizations, all these different gospel things. So I want to be careful when I say that word. I want to define it for you because it's very specific what I mean when I say the gospel is the central message of Christianity. It's the fundamental belief that we have. And it's this. I'll, I'll give it to you as quickly as I know how. God made a perfect world. It was beautiful. It was right. He himself said it was good. He made a perfect world, and yet we are sinners, and because of our sin, because of our disobedience, everything in this world is broken. And we can look around and see that this morning. Even good things are broken, that we're seeing them through a broken lens. Everything around us is broken, and we can see that. Just turn on the news in the evening. You can see that. We live in a broken world. And yet, Christ came, and he lived a perfect life. He followed the law perfectly, and even though he was perfect, he died He was killed. He was murdered on our behalf, in our place, on Calvary, substituting himself for us. We're the broken people. We're the ones that disobeyed. We're the ones that rebelled and messed up. And yet Christ came and died, even though he was perfect, in our place, substituting himself for us. Not just that, he rose on the third day. They buried him in a tomb, and three days later, he proved that he had conquered death by walking out of that tomb. And here's what he says. He says, if you'll come to him through faith, Belief upon him, upon his death on the cross, and repentance, confessing your sins to him, and turning from them, then you'll be saved. That, that his death on the cross, his death on Calvary is in your place. He's traded places with you, substituting himself, his death, for you so that you can have life. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. You don't have to clean yourself up first. You don't have to come to him worthy of his love because none of us are. We can't earn it. We can't win it. The gospel is that God's law was broken. Death was the penalty for God's law being broken. And someone, Jesus, paid that penalty for you. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. And so we can receive forgiveness and new life when we repent and trust in him. And so this morning, let's see how that truth that Paul's claiming that we're still believing today comes out as Paul travels on this second missionary journey. Three points this morning we'll make in the text. The first one is this. We can believe the gospel, what I just explained to you, Because by the power of God, we'll always find some people believing it. No matter where you go, when the gospel is proclaimed, some people will be believing it by the power of God, by the work of his Holy Spirit. So look at verses 1 through 4, chapter 17. I'll remind us of what our brother Kirk just read. Now when they passed through Amphipolis and Apollyanna, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, And on three Sabbath days, so three weeks he's there, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Now, can I do something a little different this morning, church family? I guess I'm asking your permission, but then I'm just going to do it anyways. Uh, Just something a little different for you this morning. Most of the time... Either myself or Pastor Michael get up here and we read and explain, hopefully, uh, a text of scripture to you. Because we believe, Michael and myself, that that is the way that God communicates with us through his word as the Holy Spirit helps us to understand it, make application from it. But what we don't usually do is show you how we get there, the process what we we do behind our desk as we study texts of scripture like this and, and desire to bring them to you on a Sunday morning. And so this morning, I want to maybe for just a couple seconds pull back the curtain for you, if you will, and show you how I got here because I think it's the easiest way to see what the text is clearly teaching us. Look at the four verses we just read. If you write in your Bibles, which is fine if you do, fine if you don't, you can underline these words because they're important. If you have an iPhone Bible... You're gonna be at a little bit of a disadvantage. But if you want to underline these six verbs, six verbs in these four verses, I'll point them out to you. Verse two, he reasoned. Paul reasoned with them. Verse three, he was explaining. Verse three again, he was proving. Verse three again, he was saying. Verse three again, he proclaimed. And verse four, they were persuaded. Now, those verbs, those action words, are important because whatever they're pointing to must be important in the text, especially. If they're pointing to the same thing. If all six of those verbs are pointing us to the same thing, that's pretty important for us to see. And so let's ask, what did he reason? He's explaining what? He's proving what? He's saying what? He's proclaiming what? And they were persuaded to believe what? And the answer to all six of those verbs is verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. That it was necessary for Christ to suffer and rise from the dead... And saying, this Jesus, who I proclaim to you, is the Christ. Here's what Paul's saying, friends. He's going into the most religious place in that city, the synagogue. And he's saying to the most religious people in that city, the Jews, you're religious people. And I see that you've been waiting for the Messiah, and that's good. That's good that you saw the scriptures, you're expecting a Messiah. Well, this Messiah that you've been waiting for is not coming as a military general to overthrow the Romans, which is what you're expecting. To some general to come in and overthrow those that are oppressing you. In fact, this Messiah, that's what Christ means in the text. And When it says Christ, he's saying Messiah. This Messiah must, it's necessary, Paul says, it's necessary that he suffer and die, which is not what they were expecting, and rise again. And this Christ, this Messiah, has already done just that. And his name is Jesus. Here's what he's going to say. We're going to dive a bit deeper into how Paul is communicating this truth in just a second. But we can't, we can't start there. A lot of folks, when they read this text, they go into how Paul is communicating this truth. But wait, we must see what Paul is communicating first. He's telling them the most important truth in all of Christianity. No, in fact, he's telling the most important truth in the entire timeline of human history. He's telling them that Jesus Christ died on your behalf. He's proclaiming to them the gospel that death was the penalty for sin, and Jesus traded places with you. He, he died the death. You and I should have died, and you're given the life that he lived. And it doesn't matter what faith, denomination, organization, what any other leader in any other cult or religion in the world teaches you. If this is true, it supersedes everything. Because God himself traded places with you and died your death. Well, let's look for a second at how Paul is communicating this truth because I believe there's some application here for us, church. Paul's public ministry was sort of three-pronged here in the text in Thessalonica. First, it says he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The idea here is that he dialogued with them, that there was an exchange of, of question and answer. He's proposing a question. And he would take them to the Jewish scriptures and say, hey, uh, and, and by the way, those Jewish scriptures that Paul was taking them to is the very same scriptures that are in your Old Testament in your lap right now. It's not a new Bible. It's not a different Bible. Those are the scriptures that he was proclaiming to them. And he would take them to the, to the Old Testament. He would say, hey, look at this passage. Who is this about? And then he would follow up with the answer. See, this is Christ. The prophets were telling about Jesus. And here's how Jesus fulfilled this. So he was, uh, he was reasoning with them. The second thing, verse 3 says that he was explaining to them. Now in the Greek, this word literally means opening. He was opening to them. It's a strong word that Luke uses here. And remember, Luke is the writer of Acts, but Luke also wrote the book of Luke. And Luke uses this word back in Luke chapter 2, verse 23, this word that we see in our text this morning as explaining. He uses it in Luke chapter 2, verse 20, 23 for the opening of a woman's womb. And so what hes it's a very vivid picture that, that Luke has given us here. What he's saying is he's explaining in a way that he's opening up to you. He's communicating clearly and carefully as he can. He's connecting the dots for them between what they would know as religious people in their Old Testament and Jesus who fulfilled all of those things in the Old Testament. let see what he's doing here. He's, there's a question and answer going on and he's provoking thought and then he's explaining to them as carefully as he can the answers to those questions. And then the third thing that we see in verse 3 says that he was proving to them the idea here is that he's giving them evidence he's sort of like a courtroom scene like you would see on a on a drama or a court court drama where he's taking evidence and for him from the scriptures and he's holding up that evidence and he's saying hey jury those of you listening think about this now think about how christ fulfills this the prophet joel the prophet isaiah said this about the christ and here's what jesus did do you see that connection He's giving them evidence, and then he's showing them how Jesus fulfills that prediction. Why is this important for our church family? Why would we spend any time thinking about how Paul is communicating the gospel to these people here in Thessalonica? Well, because in all three ways, whether he was uh, reasoning, whether he was explaining, or whether he was proving, the, the message is the same. Christ must suffer, die, and rise again, because we're sinners in need of a Savior, and so here's the, church, here's the takeaway, church family. Whether the gospel is dialogued, opened, approved, reasoned, it's always going to stand on its own because it is true. And then it is truly the power of God. And if it is truly the power of God, then people will come to hear it and believe. And that's what we see in our text in the first four verses here in, in Thessalonica. Look at verse 4. We, we see that result from Paul's ministry there, verse 4. And some of them... Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Some of them. That would be some of those in the Jewish synagogue listening as Paul and Silas taught there in the, in the synagogues, as did a great number of, of Greeks, the text says. So it doesn't matter if you're Jewish or Greek, religious or, or secular, uh, man or woman. The message of Jesus has power to save, and we can expect that it will. When the gospel's proclaimed, some will believe. Some application for us here church family. As we think about living our lives, the Christian walk out in our workplaces, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, here's a few takeaways we can think through as we as we hear this text. When you share your testimony, when you share your story of what Jesus has done for you, make sure, as Paul did, that Jesus is the center of that story. Now think about this. Notice all of the ways that that Paul has shared and the takeaway from each one of those methods of sharing the gospel is that Jesus is the center. Oftentimes we we share a lot about our lives and a lot of times we we share maybe about the suffering that we're going through or or the way that God has saved us, the past, right? The wickedness and sin that we used to live in and how God rescued us from that. And those are good things. Do share that. That's fine. People need to hear that. But let's make sure that the thing that people remember when we walk away from them and we've shared part of our lives with them is that Jesus is the hero of the story. That they don't walk away going, Ooh, that dude was a rough cat back in the day. Or man, that dude's been through it. Seems like the devil's thrown everything in the kitchen sink at that guy. Which may be true, but make sure that they remember that Christ is the one who's redeemed you. The gospel should be clear when they walk away. And so, so Paul could have talked about, think about all Paul could have talked about here. He could have talked about his reputation as being a leading Jew. That he had more education than probably anybody in that synagogue. That he was an elite when it came to rabbis. He was the trained guy in the room. Could have talked about that. would have been true. He could have talked about it being, being shipwrecked or imprisoned or beaten with rods. And all of those, th- those things would have been true. And maybe even made an impact on those folks. Maybe brought out some emotional response from them, but he passes over those things, at least in our account here in the text, so that he could make sure that Jesus was the center of the story, that the gospel was the thing being elevated. We should do the same. Second thing we can take away from this is that when you share Jesus with people, I'm assuming that we're doing that, you hear that in my voice, right? When you share Jesus with people, do so using the scriptures. Do so using the scriptures. That's what Paul does. Be, be thoughtful about how you communicate with people and, and, and assume uh, that, that when you're sharing Jesus with people that God is going to work through his word because that's what he's promised to do. He's given us the scriptures and that's how the Holy Spirit draws men and women unto salvation. And so be patient with people that come from different backgrounds. Be patient with folks that may not have the same, same history that you do. Come from the same place that you do. As you share the gospel and lift up the scriptures, be patient. Aren't you glad patient, that God was patient with you? He gave you more than one opportunity. So share the gospel from the word of God and be patient as God uses that to draw people to himself. Help people to think over the weighty implications of the gospel in thought-provoking and in biblical ways, but in winsome ways. Think about this. If the gospel is the greatest news in all of the world, then when you talk about the gospel, when you talk about scripture with folks at work, they should hear that in your voice. They should hear that this is the best news in all of the world and it's changed your life. Third thing. When you share Jesus with people, do so with lives of integrity. And we don't clearly see this in in these four verses that we just read, Paul's integrity. But that doesn't mean that it's not there. Paul goes on. The cool thing about Scripture is that Paul goes on. uh, He leaves Thessalonica. We're going to see that in the text in just a second. He leaves these folks. But very soon after, he's going to write a letter back to them. He's going to write a letter back encouraging them and, and spurring them on in ministry. And the cool thing about the Bible is that we have a copy of that letter. It's called First and Second Thessalonians. We see him writing back to this very group of people that believed in this town in Thessalonica. Listen to what First Thessalonians chapter 2 says. And here's where I'm getting this idea of when you share the gospel, do so with integrity. Make sure your life matches up to your words. Here's what we, here's what we hear Paul saying back to them in the letter that he wrote back to them. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi. That's what we learned about last week in our study of Acts. And as you know, we had a boldness in our God to declare the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. But just as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is our witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, Though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ, but we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very own selves, because you had become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, worthy of God who calls you uh, in, into his own kingdom and glory. Here's what Paul's saying. He writes his letter back to these folks sometime later, and these very people that we're reading about in Acts that come to know Christ, and he's basically saying, you know us. You know us. And so when we left and the the people continued to stir up junk about us, don't listen to that stuff. You know our hearts. You know our integrity. You know our character. You know our motivations when we were with you. He's not doing that to brag on himself, to say, hey, look how good I am. You remember how awesome of a a preacher I. No, he's saying the gospel is too important to get it twisted over some false accusations. You remember our integrity. You remember the way we served you and loved you and cared for you while we were there. What he's saying is that his life illustrated his teaching, and his teaching explained his life. And the same thing should be true of us, church family. When, when you step out on a limb at work, and your heart's racing in your chest, and, and you stand up for Jesus, and you, you share Jesus with a coworker, worker that doesn't mean we're perfect. But that coworker should go, you know, his life matches up with what he's saying. The way he lives, it, it seems to be that he believes this, and it's changed his life. All right? That doesn't mean we have to be perfect before we start sharing Jesus with folks. It's an encouragement for us to continue to consider our integrity, our our life, our character. As we have Jesus on our lips, he should also be lived out in our lives. Well, we we consistently see this in Paul as he goes from town to town. And so we should evaluate our lives and our teaching as we do the same. Second point in our text this morning. If we can believe the gospel, because by the power of God, wherever we go, we're going to find people that believe it. When it's proclaimed, the Holy Spirit brings people to believe. The second thing in our text is the opposite of it. We can believe the gospel because we'll always find some people who are provoked by it, who are angered by it. that's what we see in the next part of the text, verses 5 through 9. Continue reading with me. It says, But the Jews were jealous. And the people of the city, uh, and the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. It's clear from reading the text this morning that some people hear the message of Christianity and they believe God works the miracle of regeneration in their heart, and they come to faith and repentance, and they believe, and eternal destinations are forever changed. But some as the text clearly indicates, have the opposite response to the exact same message. They hear, verse 5 and 6, they hear, and some of the Jews, upon hearing the gospel explained, discussed, proven, proclaimed, some of them hear the exact same message and they go ballistic. They get raging mad. They claim that these Christians were malicious. And so they drug them off before the uh, the authorities, claiming uh, false accusation against them. In in our text, verse 5, It says that some of the Jews were so mad that they went into the city and found some wicked men, the text says, to stir up a riot or a mob. Now, the King James Version, if any of you are packing the King James Version this morning, uh, the the King James calls these guys lewd fellows. Lewd fellows. I like what A.T. Robertson says uh, back in the 1930s. He he translates this text and he says, uh, These guys are bums. That's the simplest and easiest thing to do is to call them bums, what they are. They start a riot, they start a mob, and soon Thessalonica is in an uproar. So these bums head over to the house of Jacob, uh, Jason, they descend upon the place like flies on meat, and they, they can't find Paul and Silas or Timothy there, and so they settle for Jason. He's the, the host, he's the one that put them up when they came into the city. And they bring Jason before the city officials, and they, they give these ridiculous claims that they're, they're causing a riot, they're stirring up trouble maliciously. And this indictment is is clearly given against against Paul, Silas, and and Timothy. But in doing so, look at verse 6. They're bringing an indictment against these guys, but it's really the greatest compliment they could ever give. Look at verse 6. And these men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. These men have turned the world upside down. Why? Not because they're rebel rousers or because they're trying to incite a riot, but because they're claiming that Jesus is king. And if Jesus is king, then he, he is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of all adoration. But, but see, the people twist it, right? They hear, if Jesus is king, then well, Caesar must not be king. So what you're really saying is that we shouldn't, we shouldn't honor Caesar. But nothing could be more, more distant from the truth. What, what, what happens is when we submit to King Jesus, Jesus commands, this is, this is Romans 13, that we submit to governing authorities. So we worship King Jesus while we honor our our leaders, our government officials, our rulers. These guys aren't being rebels. James Boyce in his commentary says this. Instead of turning the world upside down as they were charged, Paul and Silas were actually setting it aright. They were actually showing what submission to King Jesus looked like, which would be good for Rome, which would be good for Thessalonica. If people would get their their minds wrapped around King Jesus, then they would submit and be peaceful citizens. And so the city officials are disturbed. Verse 8 uh, they're, 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 they're cautious, though, in their actions. Uh, they're, they're disturbed by this, but they don't, they don't jump to conclusions. It's possible that they heard about what happened in Philippi. If you remember last week, they falsely imprisoned Paul and Silas, and it looked really bad on them. It was really embarrassing. So maybe Thessalonica, they hear about that, and they're, they're kind of careful not to do the same thing. Either way, they force Jason. They take him, and they force... He and the other brothers there to, uh, to put up security money, sort of like a bond, that if these guys continue stirring up trouble, then, then they'll lose that money. During the night, though, the Christians uh, in that city send Paul and Silas and Timothy 50 miles west to Berea, which is where we'll see next. But here, I want to summarize for us what we've seen in these first nine verses because it's really simple. It's really simple. Again, this idea that the the truth of the gospel is not just my truth or your truth, but it's universal, absolute, objective truth. Here's how we see at least two evidences of that in Acts chapter 17. The sun that melts the wax hardens the clay. The The same sun that melts wax hardens clay. The gospel that melts some people to the place of repentance is the same gospel that hardens others in their sin. And this is how we can see that the the work of Scripture, the work of of, of the gospel, evidence in, in people's lives. Both responses are evidence to a gospel that's true. This is why Paul can show up in town after town after town, go into the synagogues, teach, explain, reason, and dialogue, get chased out of that city, as we've seen now twice, we'll see three times in just a second, and he leaves the results up to God because he knows that the gospel is faithful to produce in some repentance and in some hardness. So let me ask you this morning, maybe the most important question that you've ever been asked. Which one is happening in your heart right now? As the gospel is communicated, as you hear about Christ who died on your behalf so that you don't have to suffer eternally the consequences of your sins, which one is happening in your heart right now? Are you just ready to get out of here so you can go get some lunch and you wish I would just hush because I'm the the barrier between you and lunch right now? Or maybe for the first time in your entire life, the gospel sounds like the best news in all of the world to you. And this this truth that you maybe had heard before, Jesus died on a cross, it now becomes the most important thing that you could imagine giving your life to because someone took your penalty. One of two things is happening in your heart this morning. Which one is it? Could it be that God's melting someone's heart and leading someone to repentance because of the reality of this truth this morning? Let's continue in our text. We'll see where Paul and the missionary team go next. Here's what we learn. I'll give you what we learned from from the start, and then we'll see it as we unpack the Scriptures. If the gospel's true, if it's universally true, if it's absolute truth, if it's objective truth for all of time, then we'll see some people brought to faith in Christ. We'll see some people rejected outright. But if that's true, then how can we know it? How can we, if the gospel is true, how can we learn it? How can we center our lives around it? How can we be convinced of it daily? That's our third point. We believe the gospel as we examine it in the word of God, in the scriptures, in your Bible. That's how we know it, learn it, and become familiar with it, cherish it. Look at verses 10 through 15. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Jews were, now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And many of them believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as the men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. Now, Paul's been chased out of the last two cities that we've seen him spend time in, Philippi and Thessalonica. He's ran out of town. He travels under the cover of darkness to Berea. Now, Luke doesn't uh, tell us much about Paul's time there. We don't, we don't know a lot of details, but what he does tell us is really important. As usual, Paul starts out in the synagogue, right? He starts out in the religious center of the city. He's proclaiming Jesus as the Messiah, which is what he typically does. And, uh, and the response from the Bereans is quite different. In fact, the text actually says in verse 11 that they were more noble than the Jews of Thessalonica. So if the Bible is calling a group of people, in particular a group of non-Christians, uh, more noble than someone else, I think that's something we should lean in and listen to. Why is it that the Bible would say they were more noble? Why is it through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that Luke would write in, in Acts that these people were noble? I'm going to give you a few reasons. Four in particular. First, The Bereans received the scriptures. Look at verse 11. It says, Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word. They had a teachable attitude. Their hearts were open and not hardened. Man, how I wish our culture, our world, the United States could hear and realize this truth. Like There's a deeply planted misunderstanding in our society that the Bible is just an an old, outdated, irrelevant book that has no meaning for today's culture, that it's kind of archaic. Sort of like we would, we would view like uh, William Shakespeare or, or Greek mythology. And it's just a, b- a bunch of, of fantasy stories that if you listen to them, maybe they, should, they could teach you something about how to live and treat your neighbor, some kind of morality. But friend, that could not be more wrong. The Bible is God's word, breathed out by God, inspired by men to write under the guidance of the Holy Spirit so that we can know him. It communicates God to us. It shows us who Christ is. Here's the first step in becoming a student of the Bible. Approach God's word with humility. And trusting that it's meant to change you. It's not just a story about some people that lived a long time ago. It's an active book. The Bible says it's like a two-edged sword that divides. So as you approach the scriptures, ask God, how are you changing me today as a result of coming into contact with your word? That's where the Bereans were. They received the word of God. Second thing, the Bereans studied the scriptures eagerly, it says. Look at verse 11 again. Now these Jews are more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness. Not only did the Bereans have this, the starting place of, of belief or listening to the word of God, they were serious about learning it. They did it with eagerness. They had an eagerness to know what God had said in his word. Peter would say something similar in 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, Peter says this, like newborn infants, he holds up this image of a, of, a, of a baby. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk. That by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. It's the picture that Paul Peter gives us. And as a pastor, I, I, when I talk with folks and share with folks, and people say they just don't get this Christianity thing or that they're not religious or that it just doesn't have any bearing on their life, I always want to ask, have you tasted that the Lord is good? Have you tasted, not like mama or daddy or grandma or grandpa, but have you tasted that the Lord is good? You see, all day long, all day long, I can describe to you what, what, what a steak tastes like. I can tell you about it. I can tell you the, the, the flavor and the smell and the, 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 the texture of it and the char that you get from the grill that's just, mm, that adds so much flavor to it and the nuances that come from a perfect cut of, of Angus beef. I can tell you about that all day long, but you're not gonna get it until you taste it, until you, till you sink your teeth in it and, it, and it and it's in your mouth and you taste it for yourself. And so when people say, I don't get this stuff, or I don't believe this, or, or, or this has no meaning or bearing on my life, my first, hesita- my first thought without hesitation is, you've never tasted the Lord, have you? Because when you've tasted, you've seen that he is good. And you taste and see that the Lord is good through his word. That's where we encounter Christ. And so if we have preconceived ideas about what you know, other people have told us, or based upon what we see in the media, or based upon what grandma or grandpa did, we've not tasted for ourselves. Taste and see that Christ is good. They studied the scriptures eagerly in Berea. And this is where they see Christ. He reveals himself through his word. It should cause us to run to his word with eagerness. Third thing, the Bereans studied the scriptures carefully. Look at verse 11 again. All of this coming from verse 11. Now the Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness examining the scriptures. Luke's noting for us that the Bereans were, were exercising spiritual discernment, right? Right? They're not just listening to Paul preach and taking his word for it. They went home and they did their homework. They're not gullible people. They're not just hook, line, and sinkering everything that this new preacher in town has to say. They're hearing what he says. They're going home and taking their Bibles, and they're examining it. Is what this guy's saying about the Messiah, is it possible that it's true? It's easy to have a great teacher come along, someone who's really engaging fun to listen to, someone who's charismatic, maybe a great storyteller, maybe somebody who's a great salesman, and you lean in and and, and you you take what they say because of the personality of the person or because it's just interesting to you. Not these Bereans. They examined what was being said and held it up against the litmus test of scripture. If this doesn't align with scripture, we're not going to believe it. That's where they were at. Now, keeping with the image of scripture as food, think about a mama bird for a second. Think about a mama bird with, with her, her little babies in the nest and mama flies off looking for food and she finds something that she thinks would be suitable for the babies and she flies back to them in the nest. She doesn't just lay that food before them, does she? She chews it up. Some birds even digest it and regurgitate it before giving it to them at the, at the risk of, of being really awkward and even really gross. When it comes to uh, scripture, you need to do some hunting for yourself. You don't need to rely on me or any other preacher for pre-digested food. Man, come here and and worship the Lord with the people of God. It's good for us. It's right for us to do that. But then go home and look at the Scriptures for yourself. Examine it to be true. Mind the riches of God's Word for truth and for life. The the hills of Scripture are full of nuggets of treasure. Go and find them for yourself. We can't afford not to examine Scripture for ourselves in the day and age we live in because we're hearing all sorts of stuff about Scripture. Fourth thing, and the last one that we see about the Bereans here, is that they studied the scriptures daily. It says, now these Jews are more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Listen, church, they didn't just look at their Bibles for 45 minutes while they were gathered with their church family on Sundays. I think we can be guilty of that. If we're honest, some of ours sit on the nightstand until we head to church on Sunday. This was not the case for them. They had a daily practice of examining the word, seeing if it's true. And when Paul's claiming what he's claiming, they realize these things have eternal ramifications. And so they spent time daily seeing if they were true. We should do the same, friend. If we believe that, that, that there is an afterlife, there's something coming after this life. When we breathe our last year and our heart stops beating on this earth and there's something that's coming later, we should do everything we can to consider and see what that is. It would be foolish not to. That's what these folks were doing daily. Friends, there are treasures that await you as you approach the Word of God. And here's the thing I can promise, I'll make you a promise that the the 30 minutes or so of sleep that you give up to wake up early and meet Christ in His Word, you'll never regret. Oh, it's worth it to spend time with our King. And we can say that Christ is our supreme delight. We can say that with our mouths all we want until we're blue in the face. That he's our ultimate satisfaction. That he's our joy. But how would our time spent with him reflect that? I'm not trying to guilt trip anybody. This is me. I'm pointing a finger at me this morning, church family. How much time do we savor in the word of God? Meeting our king there. That's how we commune with him. That's how we fellowship with him. We see the results of this gospel encounter in Berea. In our final verses this morning, it says that many Bereans believed. Just like we saw in Thessalonica, many Jews, also many Greeks, believed. They believed, the, they believed the truth of the gospel. They came to faith in Christ. But the text also tells us that many uh, women, it's careful to show us that twice in our text, that many women also believed. I think the scriptures are making clear for us this morning that this church in Berea was formed, and it didn't matter whether you were Greek or Jew or man or woman or rich or poor or sl- Any of those factors or considerations, when the gospels preach, people believe. It's also encouragement to us, church family, that everyone that comes through those doors is not going to believe. But some will. We can expect that some will repent and trust Christ when they hear the gospel. There's another thing we learn about this occasion in Berea, and that's that conflict arose again. The Jews from Thessalonica, that's where Paul just left in our text earlier in chapter 17. Those same guys traveled to Berea, stirring up yet again another mob against Paul and Silas. They just won't leave well enough alone. And this isn't the first time that Paul has faced persecution, and it won't be the last time that Paul faces persecution for preaching Jesus. And apparently it was Paul that was the center of the attack because he leaves. He goes to Athens, and Silas and Timothy are allowed to stay there, strengthen the churches, encourage this newly founded church, until Paul says, says, come on to Athens with me. Listen, church family, what we see in both of these accounts, in Thessalonica and here in Berea, is that the word of God is central. That's what Paul was preaching. Every time he shows up, he's proclaiming the gospel through the scriptures. Paul and the missionary team would turn the world upside down by turning the word of God loose. That's how they did it. That was their method because that was the truth. That was the authority. That was what they based their lives on. This King Jesus, who is revealed to us in scriptures. And so there's an encouragement for us, church family, to keep on teaching and learning and leaning on and hearing about Christ from the scriptures. That's how we know Him. That's where we find absolute universal truth. This morning, as we close, I'll share a story with you from Kent Hughes. He recounts this story in his commentary of sitting at a, at a nice restaurant one day, fancy restaurant. The waitress comes in over to his table, and he politely asks her, Have you you made the wonderful discovery of knowing Christ as your Lord and Savior? And she says no and began to make excuses for why she had not. She says uh, she couldn't get to church because she works on Sundays. And she says she would feel more comfortable if she had a Bible in her own Romanian language. And so on and so forth. She began making these excuses. And since there were not many people in the restaurant on that day, he reached uh, for a copy of a tract. Gospel tract that just explained the gospel to this young lady. And he realized, though, when he reached for it, that he, he didn't have any on him that day. And so instead, he took a napkin off of the table, and he, he, he took a, a pen, and he began to write out the gospel in a way that would be clear, clearly communicated to this, to this young lady, explained the gospel to her on this napkin, and gave it to her, and went on about her day, and she, he went on about his day. and a, little, a few days later, he dropped back into that same exact restaurant and gave her a copy of the Bible in Romanian. She said was uh, one thing that she needed, so he wanted to give her that. He went on about his day again, and he came back a, a third time to the same restaurant sometime later. And from across the restaurant, she saw him and recognized him and came over to him and, and informed him that she had, in fact, been reading the Bible that he gave her. And that, that, that in fact, uh, after some time she began reading the Scriptures, she would find herself staying awake all night long reading the Bible with her lamp on because she couldn't put it down. She'd never seen truth like this. And then she went on to inform him that even more she'd given her life to Christ and she'd repented of her sins and she was now a Christ follower. She pulled the napkin out of her pocket. Now almost in tatters, worn almost into two pieces, she said, would you write down that information for me again, the gospel? Because I've shared it and showed it to so many people that my napkin's now coming apart. The power of the gospel, the power of the word of God had yet again turned another life upside down. That is the gospel. It has that power. It has that effectiveness. I pray that we lean into it as well. Let's pray together.